A Fortunate Grandchild 2. Uncle Harry My Uncle Harry, though resident at Grandma Reed's, lived in a world of his own. I don't think that I ever have met anyone quite so dreamily abstracted as this diminutive uncle. It was G. K. Chesterton, I think, who pointed out that absence of mind meant presence of mind somewhere else. This was so, I imagine, in Uncle Harry's case. He was absorbed in two subjects. The Young Men's Christian Association was one, and some sect which believed that the future was foretold by the hieroglyphics on the pyramids. The tribes of Israel also figured in this doctrine, and Uncle Harry was a dedicated believer. His job was something to do with the newspaper world on the printing side. He went daily to Fleet Street, as far as I recollect, to the news of the world. I know that one day he took us to his place of work, which was incredibly noisy but fascinating, and my sister and I were presented with miniature copies of the paper, which we treasured. I suppose that he had some modest routine job, which he accomplished quite satisfactorily, as he was never sacked, and which enabled his mind to rove happily over the two subjects dearest to his heart. He was a tiny man with brown dreamy eyes and an enormous walrus moustache. We hated receiving Uncle Harry's damp and fumbling kisses, and did our best to dodge them, although our mischievous father inevitably prompted us to our reluctantly undertaking this duty. Left alone, I don't think Uncle Harry would have noticed our presence, and the part he played in my grandma's house was a minor one. However, when pressed at family parties, he was public-spirited enough to sing Little Annie Rooney, his one party piece, after Aunt Rose had obliged with her Hark, Hark the Lark in a tremulous soprano. As girls, my sister and I mimicked Aunt Rose in action. Now, I confess, I sound exactly the same when I take to song. Uncle Harry wore neat, dark suits, but when I found, but what I found most intriguing were elastic armbands made of metal, which he wore about his elbows over his shirt sleeves. I suppose it was difficult for such a little man to buy small enough shirts. The armbands were snapped off when he changed and were left on the dressing table. Sometimes I was allowed to play with them in Uncle Harry's absence. No doubt he had forgotten to put them on that day. He was a tireless worker for the local branch of the YMCA, and I remember going to a fete to raise funds for this good cause. The chief attraction to me was a wooden bust at the entrance. He was holding out a hand on which one put a coin, and immediately the hand came up to the widely grinning mouth, and the coin was gulped down. I badgered Uncle Harry until he showed me the lever at the back, which controlled this miracle. I have had a soft spot for the YMCA ever since. He had a small bedroom on the first floor of 267 overlooking the garden. It was very plain and neat, kept so, I have no doubt, by hard-working Aunt Jess, and the only ornament that I can remember was a china bust of a jester in cap and bells. This little figure was reversible. On one side the jester leant back, the silent bells 
shaking back from his laughing face, a picture of well-fed happiness. On the reverse side, the bells hung around a doleful face with pursed mouth and many wrinkles. I coveted this ornament, but was only allowed to hold it occasionally, and then over Uncle Harry's white counterpane in case it broke. Grandma Reed and the rest of the family seemed to treat Uncle Harry with the tender indulgence given to a backward child. Uh, no doubt, if he was ever asked to undertake any matter of responsibility, in case he forgot it. On the other hand, despite his apparent vagueness, he was no fool, and when finally he became the one man in the household which was set up with Aunt Jess and Aunt Lizzie, after Grandma's death, he probably emerged as much more capable man than he had appeared when overprotected by his mother, Jess and Aunt Rose. Grandma Shafe, Alice Shafe, 1860 to 1933. Grandma Shafe, my father's mother was a complete contrast in looks to Grandma Reed. She was considerably taller, was fair-skinned, and had a mass of fluffy white curls. She was also very large. Grandma Reed probably weighed about seven stones. My guess is that Grandma Shafe probably tipped the scales at over twelve. She dressed well and always looked beautifully turned out despite her bulk. She favored lighter colors than Grandma Reed and wore mainly blues, grays, and purples. She had a number of toques, many with veiling over the face, and these sometimes matched the loose coat which reached her calves or ankles, the fashions beloved of the late Queen Mary, who was seven years younger, were those which my grandma Shafe followed and which suited her very well. She was a jolly person with round merry eyes of gray and a wheezy laugh, which was a good deal in evidence. She was particularly fond of my father, with whom she had much in common, and he was always able to amuse her to the point of reducing her to tears of delight as she fought for breath through her laughter. It was a very good thing that she had a sense of humor, for my grandfather had very little and had been a repressive father, but I will say more of Thomas Smith's Schaefer later. Many years afterwards, when she was living with her daughter Ava, Grandma Schaefer was asked why on earth she had married him. The answer was poignant. Well, dear, you see, I wasn't very happy at home. Nevertheless, she was loyal and hard-working wife to the man of her choice, and her children adored her. She had been born Alice Batt in 1860, I think in London, but I know little about her parents. Certainly she had admirers, and with her gaiety and cheerful disposition, this was to be expected. One suitor she would have married, she said later, but her parents strongly disapproved, and she obeyed them. When or how she met Thomas Schaefe, I do not know for sure but suspect that it was probably through the church. He was a good-looking young man, fair-haired and blue-eyed, very straight and slim. His looks probably attracted her, and his serious nature probably appealed to her parents, who no doubt were anxious to see her lively and attractive daughter settled with a responsible man. 
It is possible that she still secretly mourned the young man whom she had refused, but certainly she was still young. Only twenty-one when she married Thomas Smith Schaefe on Christmas Day in 1881. They set up house in a respectable suburb in East London, possibly in Manor Park, or Leytonstone, where there was a good public transportation service to the central London. Thomas was employed in a very responsible position at the post office in Mount Pleasant and traveled daily to his clerical work. They always rented houses until retirement when they bought 17 New Pier Street at Walton-on-Nays in Essex, where I still where I first remember them. Evidently rented property suited them very well and they had plenty of choice in those days. It was the habit of my grandfather to move somewhere in the eastern suburbs every three or four years when he felt that his present abode needed redecoration. The mind boggles at the thought of so many domestic upheavals, but evidently Grandma accepted them with her customary good humor. Thomas suffered severely from claustrophobia, as later my father did, and his family had chosen Walton-on-Nays as a suitable holiday center when he and his brother and sisters were young, because there were no tunnels to negotiate from Liverpool Street Station. Consequently, young Tom was fond of this little seaside resort, and it is not surprising that he kept it up, his visit to it, and finally retired there in the early months of 1914. Grandpa Schaefe. Perhaps this is the moment to have a short account of Thomas Schaefe's family. His father was William James Schaefe, who was born in 1827 and who married in 1851 a girl called Emma Eliza Guinness. My father's second name was Guinness after his grandmother's maiden name. William and Emma had four children, a daughter named Emma Lydia, then my grandfather Thomas, another daughter, Ada, following in 1858, and the youngest child, called Edward James, was born in 1861. I was not destined to meet my great-aunts and great-uncles, although they all lived to a ripe old age. The exception was Ever Edward, whom I met when he was an elderly man approaching seventy, and the circumstances were most unusual, but more of that later. We did not meet them for the simple reason that Thomas had left home as soon as he could and would have nothing to do with his family. Mind you, we only knew one side of the story, and the family may well have asked him to depart. He was always a difficult man, and I suspect he had been a sore trial to his sisters and brother. He was quite sure that he was always right, was narrow-mindedly religious, relishing the taboos imposed by Victorian standards so that, as children, we were never allowed to play on the beach or read anything other than the prescribed holy books allowed by Grandpa on a Sunday. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy was a rule he tried to live by, and very trying it was to the rest of the household. I can't remember that cooking a substantial midday Sunday dinner came within this rule. Maybe women's work was exempt. His son used to point out that he should not read the Monday edition of the newspaper 
as men had certainly been employed in producing it on the Sabbath day. But like so many obstinate people, Grandpa was able to bend the rule to suit himself. Smoking he abhorred. I expect he had been censorious about this as a youth. My great-uncle Edward enjoyed a cigar in his later years, I recall. No doubt Brother Tom had pointed out that the downward path to hell awaited him as a smoker. A copy of the New Testament presented to him when I was about eight years of age had a note in Grandpa's hand in the margin against the page. And he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. Tobacco smokers, wrote my grandfather. There were other remarks of a like nature aimed at enlightening the young mind, but that is the one which I most clearly rem remember. He had always scored across the pages showing St. Paul's journeys. The first journey had one line, the second two, and the third had three lines. All most beautifully ruled using a fine J nib. I think he enjoyed teaching. His mind was clear, his diction precise, and he was fond of his grandchildren so long as they were completely obedient and quiet. There, there was nothing warm and happy about him, and the strict rules of behavior which he imposed upon himself and tried to impose unsuccessfully, as it turned out, upon his family, gave him a wintry rectitude and a holier-than-thou attitude which made him very few friends. He was a lay preacher and spent a great deal of time in his study writing his discourses. There were hundreds of books, Spurgeon's sermons, figured prominently, but to my infant eyes there was not a readable one among the lot. Not that we were encouraged to go into the study. Grandpa used it as his sanctum, and probably dozed in there as often as he studied. His lay preaching was not something which he had taken up on retirement. Evidently he had been interested in such things from early times, and my father used to enact a vivid imagination of Grandpa rapping on his study window, peering over the top of his spectacles, and calling out to his young sons in the garden, "'Go away, you boys! Go away!' when the ball had bounced against the window and disrupted his train of thought. Sundays must have been particularly irksome to his young family. Years later, when my sister and I used to stay there alone as children, the heavy hand of sabbatical structure was still in evidence. In a drawer of his desk in the study, he kept about half a dozen paperback stories which he considered suitable reading for a young child on a Sunday afternoon. Older people may remember some of these lugubrious effusions. The titles of those I remember were Foggy's Little Brother, By Your Own Cherries, and Christie's Old Organ, and they dealt with sanctimonious children usually dying of some lingering disease who engaged in very unchildlike pursuits, such as saving drunken fathers or reuniting parted parents. All were written in mawkish prose, revolting to any normal child. Luckily, my grandfather always retired again into his study after presenting us with our reading matter and impressing upon us the need to keep it clean. 
He probably had a nap. Grandma, as soon as the door was shut, relieved us of these dreadful books and substituted them with alternatives as a pile of home chat or a cheerful woman's magazine. Of course, if our parents were with us, we were spared the horrors of Grandpa's Sunday observance and spent the day out of the house, either on the beach or in the shelter of Grandpa's beach hut. When I think of Grandpa shaved now, I see him thin, clean-shaven, and very blue-eyed, and dressed in his everyday retirement, attire of a fine gray woolen roll-neck pullover and a gray flannels to match. He liked to stand with his back to the fire, warming his bony hands behind him. Those fingers were devastatingly strong when it came to tickling his young grandchildren's ribs, which he sometimes did when in an indulgent mood. He was always spruce and immaculately clean, and I think he loved us in his bleak way. The Beach Hut The Beach Hut was a source of great pleasure to us. Originally, it had been sighted halfway down the cliff beside the steps, which led to the beach. The cliffs in that part of the east coast were much given to erosion. I can remember the terror which gripped me when I saw a garden on the cliff top gradually being eaten away, plants and shrubs gliding topsy-turvy down the incline. Eventually the house itself went the same way, but luckily the people who lived in it had moved somewhere safer well before the fateful night. After a few minor landslides, it was deemed prudent to shift the beach hut, and Grandpa was lucky in securing a much better site directly on the promenade, so that we could run straight across the pavement to the lovely hard sand. This meant that we did not have to negotiate the stairs nor the muddy cliff path, all of which must have resulted in a much cleaner beach hut. The floor was always slightly gritty from our sandy plimsolls, and there was a marvelous salty smell compounded of natural ozone and the crocate which the exterior was painted once a year. I long cushioned benched stood against the wall and there were a number of deck chairs and folding tables. On the wall was a cupboard containing such useful things as a tea tin, sugar jar, cups and saucers and cutlery. There was a first aid tin too. There were also some cards with which we played snap and beggar your neighbor and board games of snakes and ladders, ludo and so on. I expect there were droughts, too, as Grandpa was a dab hand at this game, thoroughly enjoying huffing his way to swift victory. Here we changed into our bathing clothes and emerged shivering to make the long walk to the sea, unless the tides were really high, splashing exuberantly about the breakwaters. Bathing at Walton's meant a long trek through knee-high waves until one could submerge. My parents and grandparents considered it much safer at this stage, and blue with the cold, my sister and I obediently splashed out into the North Sea. Sometimes we paddled instead, and this I much preferred, 
For one thing, we kept on our comfortable warm clothes, simply stuffing our skirts into garments called paddling drawers. Our paddling drawers were made of sponge cloth, with pink and gray stripes round us, of course. We must have looked like spinning tops. Some of our youthful fellow paddlers had drawers made of Macintosh, which must have been far more effective. However, we were quite happy with our own garments. What did it what did aggrieve us was the fact that we were not allowed to have metal spades. So easy to cut off your toes, my dear, with those horrid sharp things, said Grandma. And so we were obliged to struggle on with our sissy wooden tools, whilst children half our age were slicing through the lovely crisp sand and knocking up enormous castles in much less time. We played cricket and tennis on this vast stretch of sandy beach, marking out the lines with our despised spades. We also played a simpler game called French cricket, which involved shielding one's legs with a tennis racket while others tried to hit them with a soft ball. The worst moments were when the attackers had closed in, and there they were, racket in trembling knees knocking, whilst the hot breath of the enemy blew the sand through one's legs. Then it was back to the shelter of the beach hut, to the kettle humming on the spirit stove, and lovely sticky buns. There we would be out of the cruel wind which always seemed to blow, however, hellslawn of the weather straight from Russia.